The following podcast contains explicit language. Friday, October 14th, 2016, from Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Ken Bone started life as a funny guy in a red sweater. Actually, he started life 34 years earlier, not wearing a sweater. He's from Granite City, Illinois, went to Granite City High School. Go Warriors! You know that a Slate employee would have a soft spot in his heart for a guy from Granite City. How soft? Talc. So Ken Bone shows up in my Twitter feed during the debate before he even asks this question. Who's that Who's that guy in the mustache with the red sweater? I want a question from that guy. And they got a question. And the world learned his name was Bone. We have one more question from Ken Bone about uh, energy policy. Ken? What steps will your energy policy take to meet our energy needs while at the same time remaining environmentally friendly and minimizing job loss for fossil power plant workers. His question demonstrated that the candidates needed to bone up on their bona fides because having a bone to pick with Mr. Trump or Mrs. Clinton is not beyond bones Ken. Ken bones Ken. Ken bone Ken. So fame, acclaim, and a Jimmy Kimmel appearance followed. He was charming, he was funny, and then Ken Bone did a Reddit Q&A where Snoop Dogg popped in to ask him to share a peace pipe, as it were, and Ken Bone was self-deprecating about his weight and sartorial choices, and he declared his favorite band was Radiohead. How? I asked my Twitter followers, who at the start of the week numbered 10 times as many as Ken Bone's, but now are about one-tenth of the Ken denizens. How could a guy this down actually be undecided in the election. Oh no, it all came out. Mike, he ain't that cool. Check his Reddit history. And so I did. There were articles about this. I clicked on a couple, Washington Post, Ken Bone was a hero. Now Ken Bone is bad. It was his destiny as a human meme. Daily Beast, Ken Bone's disturbing Reddit history shows he's not nearly as adorable as we thought. Ken Bone linked to disturbing old comments on Reddit, that from the LA Fox News affiliate. The main Fox News called this stuff questionable. All right, I brace myself to be disturbed. Here was the activity that dislocated this bone. One, he commented on pictures from the NSFW section. None of the stories I read linked to the pictures, but he did say he looked at a picture of Jennifer Lawrence naked. Oh, he was that guy. And he also said he enjoyed sex post-vasectomy. Too much information, sure, but it's not like he told us that. He put it in a closed forum under a screen name. He said that anonymously. It was for people who wanted to know about this, which is certainly a legitimate area of inquiry. It took the disturbing police to piece it all together. He made comments on pictures of a pregnant woman in a bikini. But what were these comments? Were they abusive? Were they disgusting? No, he called a pregnant woman in a bikini a beautiful human submarine. That's actually funnier and less racy than most of the jokes on Two Broke Girls. And then he said the Trayvon Martin shooting was justified. Now, I don't think it was. Ken Bone and I can disagree about the interpretation of Florida's Stand Your Ground law, and that is okay. We can disagree without me finding him disturbing. For Fox News to call him questionable, and that's a main exhibit, well, then all of Fox News is questionable. By the way, all of Fox News is questionable. I stand with Bone, who's been written off as a human meme, 
Actually, he's a human being and a pretty decent one at that. Here he is today at an event articulately explaining his missteps. If I could personally apologize to any of the people who are offended by what they read, then I absolutely would do that. And maybe I'll get that chance through this platform. Uh, but if you're if you were offended by that and you listen, I take responsibility for that. You know, some I, I'm just a dude. That's my whole thing. I'm just a guy. Sometimes I say things I shouldn't say, but I'm trying to keep it overall positive and just get people out involved in the process of, of politics. I like Ken Bone more today than I did yesterday. On the show today in the spiel, slouching towards Bethlehem, groping towards Gomorrah, and an interview with Amber Ruffin, writer for Late Night with Seth Meyers. And for Slate Plus subscribers, I'm debuting a new Gist Plus feature. It's called a Not Bat. It's not extra tape from an interview I did. It's original content straight from my brain. Meet me at the end of this episode to check it out and to find out what a Not Bat is. Or visit slate.com slash Gist Plus to check out this segment and all the Slate Plus content for free and to find out about the wily and possibly feral not bat. But now, you know how Donald Trump supposedly says those things people think but don't want to say? Well, Seth Meyers is smart enough not to say them, but funny enough to subcontract them out to his writers, who include Amber Ruffin, and she's here with us now. Amber Ruffin is a writer for Late Night with Seth Meyers. And how could this be true? Amber, is this true? The first black woman writer in late show history? That's kind of true. Okay. The way it's not true is that a lot of those white writers on Letterman identified as black white yes. black women. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they did. Um, it's, it's when we say late show, we don't mean the just late night, that franchise. We mean all of it. Yes, for wow. a network late night talk show. Okay. That is true. But there have been a lot of late night shows that, you know, haven't been on one of the major networks. Right. That are chock full of us. But at the same time, you know, I, I do think that the space, like, we could go crazy about how great Samantha B is or how good Chelsea Handler was mm -hmm. or a whole bunch of other shows. But we still take the race between back then when it was Letterman and Leto and now when it's Colbert and the Jimmy is that's like it just has occupies a bigger place in the national imagination. Yep. So that's why you're a true trailblazer. Woo. <laughs> is it good or bad? It's um, good to have a job. I heard that. <laughs> it is great to have a job. It doesn't feel like anything special because because I've been in improv for so long and uh, it's pretty white. Yeah. Also, when you're a black improviser, you know, and you do sketch and stuff, they always take you and put you you know, they spread the wealth. Oh, you sure. know what I mean? Sure. So that you'll never see but two on, black people in the same comedy show. Right. Because right. they want to spread it out. Yeah. Just like, you know, a football team can only have one long snapper, to use that analogy. Oh, of course. <laughs> they, you can't. But there's no, like, on Wednesday nights at 10, all the black improvers get together oh, to do noir prov. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, that, yeah. that very happens. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, and what's the audience like for those shows? Very mixed. That's good. <laughs> yeah. We do CP time, comedy people's time once a month at the producers club. Uh-huh. It might be called. And we are, it's just all improvisers of color and it's freaking baby face references. And like, <laughs> you go deep. Uh, yeah, we go oh, very deep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's great. 
it is nice to be able to improvise and you can reference anything. You know, some lots of times you get up on stage and you look around at your other improvisers and then you cut your references in half and you, you know, you can only play so deep. Right. But not on Friday nights once a month, but you get to go crazy. So I would think that in a lot of creative industries, the word would still be, you know, so technically you integrated late night, you know, network comedy. But did it feel like that in any way? Like, I'm not saying that it wasn't school. It was anything like uh, the schoolhouse doors and the Little Rock kids. But was there (laughs) any aspect to it where at any point you either said, wow, I'm the first person doing it or someone else did? People said that a little bit. But, you know, it's comedy. So no one's going to really stop and have a serious moment with you. (laughs) Um, But it certainly doesn't feel that way because these are all my friends you know i know a lot of them so it doesn't feel special in any way we're just digging around in a different room how big is the writing staff on late night 13 i believe 13 do you all do the same thing or are there some monologue only writers there are team monologue team sketch uh-huh and we battle every no i'm just kidding um and i am one of the sketch writers the monologue writers are weirdos right they are a bunch of frigging nut jobs. They just crank out 40 jokes, and if one hits, they're happy, but they can't not do it, right? <laughs> they are. It, yeah. yeah. They, it's joyless. Doesn't it seem joyless to you? Not ours. Our guys No, no, no. Are, I meant the monologue. Oh, your guys They're, are they're very yeah, fun. Yeah, like, yeah. they're having a good time. They love each other. But looking at them, like, yeah. I don't know that I could do that. They are, are good. Uh Stand-up comedy background, improv background of the writers, which backgrounds do they have? We are, I would say, the majority of us are improv and sketch. And there are a couple of stand-ups. Is that true? There's Matt (laughs) Goldich. And is there another stand-up? Is there even one other stand-up? Wow, that's weird. Maybe that's because Seth didn't come from stand-up. No. Right? He, he, He came from improv and then SNL. Yeah. Yeah. Seth so, is improv guy. No, when you think about it, Colbert, same thing. Mm-hmm. Huh. Jimmy Kimmel, I'm wondering, was he actually a stand-up? And Fallon was we I never realized this. We're in an, in a period where the late night hosts and James Corden, none of them are actually former stand-up comedians. Is that true? It feels the true. network ones. Again, this feeling of truth. <laughs> that is just what we're after. Um the now the monologue on Seth's show is different because he does it sitting down. Oh. But I think it also has evolved so it's less topic joke, topic joke, or, or it can it's some of that, but it can be more than that. Your team, the non-monologue team, do you get into that opening part of the show ever? Mm, we can. Yeah. You know, anyone can turn in any amount of monologue jokes anytime, but you know, they are literally the best at it (laughs) so you know i'm sorry you are wasting your time but there's plenty to do there's plenty of sketches to be written is uh are the writers you're on the show often is it more frequent with uh late night than with other shows that the writers are featured on the show or is that a specialty of amber ruffin i mean it does feel weird when it's happening because you never see the writers of lots of shows yeah but I think Seth is just very comfortable playing off another person. Yes. He's great at it. And so it's a real shame to let him sit up there by himself forever. You do this bit where there are jokes that he can't say because he's a white guy. Yeah. And then you get to say them. Tell me about the genesis of that bit. Um, Jenny Hagel, the other woman 
on uh, that bit. She came up with that idea. And um, there are, when they write the monologue, there are jokes, you know, that make it and jokes that he just loves but could never, ever say. These are two of our writers, Amber and Jenny. I'm black. And I'm gay. And we're both women. And I'm not. So I'll read the setups for these jokes, and Amber and Jenny will read the punchlines. All right, here we go. History was made Sunday at the 70th annual Tony's when, for the first time ever, all four of the musical acting honors went to black performers. Said black people, who Tony? (laughs) Now that it exists, though, you write jokes specifically for that. And at this point, or any of the jokes that you're doing in that bit, were any of them actually rejected as a Seth joke? Usually there's one. Usually there's at least one. That, oh, you know, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful that they have to write it down and it has to be, you know, heard and then just goes in the trash. It's so strange to be like, you have all of the tools to understand this joke. You know the joke. You could come to the conclusion in your head, but society will not let you. It's just insane to me. Yes, if you want to be that likable guy on late night. If you want a different kind of career, if you want to be Norm MacDonald or someone, you can maybe go Hey, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And then you know what you become? Respected by your peers. (laughs) But you know what you don't become? Paid $12 million a late night show. Is is one of the writers, uh, was he a featured player on 30 Rock? Yes. Yeah. I'm like, so so is he anything like his character? Yeah, he's goofy, yeah. He's a a goofus. Yeah, people do really know Lutz from 30 Rock, which is crazy because to me, Lutz is a famous improviser. Lutz is one of the greatest improvisers of all time. When I was a kid, he I took classes from him and I would watch him improvise um all of the time, a couple times a week, and it was just the biggest deal to see him. And then when he got 30 Rock, it didn't make any difference because he was still this big hero, you know. Um, but yeah, that's not far off. They didn't take a lot of liberties. <laughs> when when you're the, mus- the muscle for writing or the task for writing, there's an overlap with improv, but it's not exactly the same thing. I guess it's it's more on editing, which is not what you're supposed to be doing when you're improving, unless I don't really understand it. Maybe the great ones kind of do edit as they improv, but that... Is that a difficulty to get as terse as possible to, you know, it must be great to have this spark of an idea and with improv, the whole spark plays out. But with writing on a show, you have to get it into the perfect three sentences, let's say. Yeah, I don't think it is that difficult or different because improvising (laughs) is just writing is just improvising alone, which is great because then I get to say all the words. Um but if you've done uh, short form improv, then boy, oh boy, it just rolls right into it. Because short form improv, you got to be a little bit of a character sometimes. Mm-hmm. And you are constantly pumping out punchlines, which is fantastic. Anytime I meet someone who is like, oh man, I want to um, write for late night, I go find a comedy sports or any um, punchline factory. Uh, short form theater and go there and be there as long as they will have you. Because I did Boom Chicago for a total of five years. And all that was was um, short form improv and sketch. And it was just the 
best. The sketches, the material that winds up on the air, does it start off as talked material among these writers, many of whom with an improv background? A lot of times we will pitch ideas and then write from that. But every Thursday we have a read where you just write something no one asked you to write and then we go in there and Mm. read it. And lots of stuff comes from that. And we write together a little bit and sometimes we write separately. We're wild, baby. Yeah. The election has been great for your show, and it's really uh, given it purpose and um, focus, and I think Seth really likes it. What are your leanings? You person who's really following politics and would be anyway if uh, you weren't, you didn't have this gig? <laughs> a big fat no. I think this is an election everyone is following. You can't help it. It, it, it is hard to look away because every time you do, he says something crazy and you go, I missed it. Oh, man. You got to go back and you got to watch the clip of him being like. Now, the he you're talking about, Tim Kaine, I assume? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Just want to be clear. (laughs) Uh, Isn't that always the he? (laughs) That guy is. This Kaine. Do you hear what Kaine said today? (laughs) You just have those recurring Kaine bits. They're gold. They're going viral. (laughs) So do you force yourself? Do you come up then, you personally, Amber, coming up with a different kind of jokes than the two or three people on staff who are like deep into politics and would be, you know, maybe have or would be writing for a daily show type show? Definitely. You really see the difference. Ben's take is going to be goofy. You know, Lutz's take is going to be insane. Mm -hmm. Mine is going to be jokey dumb. But what's driving his, there's a lot of information in what do you call the long form bit that he does? Uh, A closer look. Closer look. Those are really good. And you're doing more of them than you ever used to, right? Were were they special once a week and now they're every day, it seems like? Yeah, I think they're Two or three times a week now. Yeah, yeah. New bombshell allegations about Donald Trump's predatory behavior toward women have surfaced. He's been doing so badly that his campaign has been reduced to arguing that they should actually be losing to Hillary Clinton by more, as Trump campaign manager Kellyanne Conway tried to argue Tuesday on CNN. Why is this woman at 46%? She's like the magic 46. She's 46% in the new NBC News Wall Street Journal poll. She's 46% in lobby swing states. And try, pardon me, well, but Anderson, she's running as the first female president who has a sitting president and first lady much more popular than she'll ever be. Your candidate is below 40%. Is that a question? No. (laughs) But this is a question. What are you talking about? You think Hillary should be farther ahead because she's running as the first female president? If running as the first female president was an advantage, it probably would have happened before 2016. There's facts and information in there. Is it the comedy writers in the room who are uh, crafting them as full of the uh, facts and information as they are? It is 90% one guy named Sal Gentile. There isn't a political question you could ask him that he could not answer. And he is an improviser and has been for a while. He just so happens to have it all. I believe he used to work at a news station. I shouldn't have started to say that if it wasn't sure. Um, He may have worked. So what can you say? He may have worked at a news station. It may be Breitbart. We don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So he and Jenny Hagel work on those every day like he jenny's jenny's politically oriented like that too yes she is and i i at least this is seth's persona he seems very invested in it oh too uh that that he's into the politics as well oh yeah yeah 
And it, so him and Sal and Jenny, that's the yeah. hive mind in general. Yeah. And then the rest of you guys, a punchline, a weird observation. Putting on dinosaur costumes. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Amber Ruffin, the forthcoming memoir is putting on diners, <laughs> dinosaur costumes as the nation goes to hell. <laughs> Thank you so much, Amber. I'm Thank so glad you, for you came in. Me. Absolutely. And now the spiel breaking, and that's the first word of this Twitter post, breaking, which is an odd way to contextualize a medium that's definitionally always breaking. And if you go by the short seller, it's possibly broken. But here we have, in this video, minute and a half, a refutation of the allegations against Donald Trump. Sorry, against Mr. Trump. Let's go to this Twitter video. I owned a pageant boutique, and I was the national fashion coordinator for five states for the Miss Universe organization. And that is called standing, people. Although if it was only for five states, would you really be the national fashion coordinator? And lots of times when offering testimonials, people give, you know, their names, couldn't find the name of this person on the actual video, or among the Trump supporters who are reposting this and reposting this, some talk show hosts with 100,000 followers are spreading this around. No one knows what this woman's name is. But anyway, let's hear what she has to say. I've heard some horrible, horrible things on the news today. That has troubled my heart, and that is why I'm coming forward now to tell you that these accusations are wrong. They're false. Now, this national fashion manager for five states says that Donald Trump couldn't have harassed anyone because she, national fashion manager for five states, would know about it with her head and with her heart. Not only that, but Trump didn't even grope her or her sister. There was one time in particular that my sister... Miss Teen Virginia, USA, and myself were in a conversation, and Mr. Trump just came right up to us, and he joined our conversation, and he wanted to know what we thought about the event, what we thought. He listened to us, and we had a wonderful conversation, and Mr. Trump was a true gentleman. And the message she wants to emphasize is this. So I'm here to tell you that those things that you're hearing on national television, that's wrong. It's very wrong. I have no way of knowing if this woman is lying or even who this woman is, but I've seen a number of such testimonials to Trump's lack of harassment in specific situations. Last week on this show, we quoted from an unharassed Miss Ohio, who now is a conservative columnist and occasional Fox News guest. Also today, former Miss Nebraska teen contestant Natasha Rickley came out and said Trump was a gentleman because producers from ABC had contacted her. Truthfeed played this as desperate liberal media digs deep to find anyone who will slander Trump for 15 minutes of fame. I would call it reporting. But here's the thing. I have no way of knowing if Trump did or didn't grope or harass anyone. I have no way of knowing if Summer Zervos, a contestant from The Apprentice who came forward today to claim Trump groped her as lying. But I do know that the national fashion manager for five states is wrong when she says these things that you're hearing in the media are wrong. Are you calling him a liar? You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. <laughs> and now these women come forward, or some of them already had come forward, and they say, yes, what he said, that's exactly what happened. He did what he said he did. They're attesting to his truthfulness. They're character witnesses of a kind. Wait, wait, you're saying Trump didn't just start kissing them like a magnet? He didn't just kiss? He didn't even wait? Are you calling Trump a liar? 
I'm not calling you the regional fashion manager or assistant to the national fashion manager. I give you the benefit of the doubt, but it seems like you're calling Mr. Trump a liar. This is an interesting set of allegations. Now, most times, allegations go in this order. Allegation, denial, or allegation, confirmation. But this time, it went like this. Confirmation, allegation, denial. Though on CNN, Trump spokesman Katrina Pearson tried to use the tools of the media against it. We're talking about the early 1980s, Don. Seriously? Back then, you had planes, what, a DC-9, a DC-10, an MD-80, 707, and maybe an L-1011? But she said specifically this was to New York, and this is what's important, because we can X out the L-1011 and the DC-10. Guess what? First-class seats have fixed armrests. So what I can tell you about her story, if she was roped on a plane, it wasn't by Donald Trump, it certainly wasn't class. In other words, Trump couldn't have harassed anyone on a plane at that time because the armrest didn't allow him to. You know how CNN will chase any airplane-related story to the end of the earth. Unfortunately, unlike the mystery flight, this idea that Trump, unshackled by the norms of decorum, but shackled by the constraints of an armrest, that idea was debunked widely with several shots of first-class airline seats from the period that show either a movable armrest or no armrest at all. First class really does describe everything about the Trump campaign's response to these allegations and so much else. And he, for one, is blaming the media for chasing the allegations down and not focusing on the important things that he wants to direct your attention to. Like Alicia Machado's sex tape, Mika Brzezinski and Morning Joe's dating life, and when he called the Pope a pawn of the Mexican government. I think that much of the Trump candidacy and the success thereof can be explained by the phrase, hands-on. That's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube has suggested a segment for me not to voice things a non-Canadian can't say. Lots of poutine jokes. Just producer Mary Wilson will be coming on from time to time to pitch things that people who haven't lived in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, just can't get away with. Apparently lots of jokes about hitting deer with your truck. Ah, whatever. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network. They're going to come on from time to time to share insights that only a totally bald and not largely bald man can say. You know that fuzzy patch on the back of your head that you run your hand through? No, no. They don't. The gist, I say Ken Bone should get his own ice cream flavor. In fact, he should take over from Jerry, and then it would be Ben Cohn and Ken Bone's ice cream. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.